by pathologizing the lower sexual desire partner, you are expecting them to change in some way and meet you where you are. Whereas instead you should both be coming to the middle and meeting in the middle on this because there's no, and we recently published a study that that showed how couples who use dyadic or like couple based strategies for mitigating desire discrepancy, those it, those relationships do so much better. So if you're like working together toward a common goal of decreasing the gap between your desire, then you're far more likely to maintain your satisfaction, sexual satisfaction and relationship satisfaction after the fact. Welcome to Asking for a Friend, the podcast that covers all those topics you may want to know more about, but might feel a lot of shame in asking. I'm your host, Katrina Buffard, and I'm a clinical sexologist, psychotherapist, speaker, and sexuality researcher. This week's episode is sponsored by My Sexual Health, credible sexual health providers. MySexualHealth.co.za is an online destination where you can find or become a credible sexual health provider. Stay tuned to the end of this episode to learn more about how to become a credible sexual health provider and for a discount to the Sexology Training Club. If there's someone to learn about the realities of sexual desire from, it's Dr. Kristen Mark. She's a prolific researcher and academic who's published and taught extensively on the topic, among other areas in the field of sexual health. And in this episode, Kristen and I delve deep into the truth of sexual desire, one which is actually pretty far from what we get taught, what we're told, or what we see on screen. This podcast is all about speaking about topics that people usually are too ashamed to ask about or too afraid to ask about and and hence ask for a friend. And I think one of the most common questions I get asked is, you know, I don't ever feel like sex. You know, my, my partner wants sex so much more than I do. You know, what can I do about that? We only have sex once a month, which kills me because you know that like quantity means nothing um we've proven that in research and these conversations I think are so there's I almost want to say they're so stuck I, I hear the same stories from my clients or from people who ask me questions on social media they're they're stuck we're stuck in a very particular narrative do you often find that when you're talking to people about sexual desire Oh, definitely. Yeah. Especially when we think about like how gendered we think about sexual desire in, in our cultures. Like there's just this idea that men are always supposed to be ready and willing to have sex and like that women are going to have a headache and not want to have, you know, there's like all of these tropes. And that also just leaves out anybody who doesn't identify within the gender binary too. So it's like, then what's their desire look like? I, yeah, we really, I hear tons of concerns just around like, I don't feel like I'm normal. I don't feel like I'm falling within where I'm supposed to be on this. And then there's so much silence, as you mentioned, like the shame and secrecy around it. So much silence in asking if you don't feel like you're fitting within, like, for instance, if a woman really wants way more sex than her partner or like, you know, then that that's also, there's like so much shame wrapped up in that, that I think becomes really problematic. I absolutely agree. I think I always always say to my clients, like the, the bed is often really full because you've brought shame with you, you've brought anxiety with you, you perhaps brought rejection or disappointment. It's a it's a very crowded space to be in. And none of that does does anything good for our desire for sex. But maybe we could just start off by by defining desire. And and I especially want to have a little 
a little conversation with you about it being a drive or not, because I've got a particular idea about it. And and I had Emily Nagoski on the podcast and she's got a certain idea about it. So I'd love to, to kind of explore that with you. Sure. I'd love to hear about both your and Emily's takes on it um, these days. I've talked to Emily previously, but I'm curious if she shifted at all. So um, yeah, I do think about sexual desire as sort of a motivation or a drive toward something. Thinking about it in terms of a drive, like hunger is, can become sort of problematic. I think there's just a lot of like external factors that contribute to our desire and it does um, rely on a lot of those pieces in order to function. And so, whereas like hunger doesn't necessarily. So if you think about it as a really similar drive to hunger, then that's not quite what we're looking at here. I think it um, does have more contextual features than that. But I do think about it as like this motivation towards something or away from, you know, I think that it can go either way. Certainly like a combination of this like psychological labeling of it. We feel that desire we feel that movement toward but um there's also physiological clues that we pay attention to that also contribute to our experience of sexual desire which distinguishes it from arousal but also there is an overlap there i i tend to agree with you about the motivation rather than a drive like hunger because and 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 emily is on the same track here with saying we're not going to die if we don't have sex obviously from an evolutionary perspective the human race would die off but we we will not die and i hear this unfortunately from a lot of heterosexual males um cisgendered men we you know i i'll die if i don't have sex again you know mm-hmm. i think that i agree with you entirely about it being a motivation and whether it it makes us it's something we experience that that we want to go towards or away from and i i wonder for you you know maybe especially from the research that you've done people's motivations about going towards and away from do you find that one person can experience both the day do they predominantly often experience more motivation to go towards or what has it looked like for you so i tend to think about it as like it really ebbs and flows sexual desire certainly ebbs and flows throughout one's life and this idea of sexual desire as a state i don't buy into i haven't seen the evidence for sexual desire as this like stable state, like a personality characteristic. Whereas I think a lot of people do think about desire that way, right? They think about it as like, I am a high desire person, or I tend to have low desire, but I don't know that that's totally accurate or capturing everything that it should be. Because I think that we see, especially within, even if you just look within one relationship at the very beginning of the relationship, there's usually this period of excitement, lots of spontaneous desire, lots of like wanting and needing and feeling like you have to have someone right and then as that relationship continues on it's not like the desire goes away but the desire does change and so i think that ebbs that ebbing and flowing of sexual desire is an indication to me that we just really don't have that it is a it is a state and that can also change across the life course you look at like on a broader level, different sorts of life transitions, the transition to parenthood or the transition into menopause or, you know, transition after a prostate cancer diagnosis. Like there's all of these different things that are external that are impacting our motivation and whether or not that's going to function the way we expect it to. I absolutely agree with you. And I just think our expectation associated to sexual desire can be so problematic 
And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm even just thinking to myself, you know, the, the six week mark postpartum where there's an expectation that, you know, a woman uh, will automatically, or let's say if she's the one who, who's, who's the parent who's birthed the child, mm-hmm. automatically she'll want sex again at the six-week mark or she'll be okay to have sex. Or the expectation that in a, at the early stages of a relationship we should want to have sex, we should want to be sexual with one another. I often think that that expectation is so associated to the shame we may feel, guilt that we may feel, the anxiety we might feel. And the other point that you made about that high sex drive, low sex drive, it it was a a conversation I had in a previous season with Chris Fox around how to navigate and understand differences in desire and relationships. And I think that, again, labeling one partner as high sex drive and the other partner as low sex drive can, again, be problematic because it deems often the low part, low sex drive partner to be a problem. Is that something totally. you've encountered? Oh, it pathological. Yeah, that that is a natural inclination, I think, for anyone. And it also reminds me of like the asexual community too. So then where do they fall? And so I think like by pathologizing the lower sexual desire partner, you are expecting them to change in some way and meet you where you are. Whereas instead you should both be coming to the middle and meeting in the middle on this because there's no, and we recently published a study that that showed how couples who use dyadic or like couple based strategies for mitigating desire discrepancy, those, those relationships do so much better. So if you're like working together toward a common goal of decreasing the gap between your desire, then you're far more likely to maintain your satisfaction, sexual satisfaction and relationship satisfaction after the fact. And I think like, that's really important to not sort of feel like, oh, I don't desire sex as much as my partner. So I'm just going to try and deal deal with this on my own. Maybe I'm going to like, try and, uh, I don't know, like maybe I'll try and watch porn on my own or I'll try and like get a sex toy and like try and I'll try and do all these things by myself to try and bring myself up to where they are. And that just is not an effective strategy and it doesn't benefit the relationship. And at the end of the day, what we're all looking to really do is benefit our relationships and strengthen those relationships as opposed to allowing something like desire discrepancy to pull you away from one another. And I love this, you know, learning this from your research in particular, that that you've actually found through studies that when it is not about one partner, assuming obviously there is no physiological reason for them not wanting to have sex and that difference existing, but your research finding that when couples work together, as you said, and they, they navigate and negotiate the difference in their interest in sex together, one of the things that has stood out for me, I will never forget from your research, is that that is actually protective for the relationship. I find that just inspiring to hear because if couples can learn, I think it's it's quite funny because, you know, I'm sure you get this as well. Journalists contact us as, as experts in this field and they want comment and they want something juicy. They, mm-hmm. they want oh. to know something juicy and they re- get really bored of me saying that the key to a healthy, happy sex life and relationship is somewhere between education and communication. <laughs> They're like, can you? 100%. Like, can I you say it every time, though. Do you? Yeah. Do you say the same oh, thing? Oh, I'm always like, communication. You want one, you want one magic bullet? Communicate. Yeah. One yeah. magic bullet, communicate. They're like, oh, 
that's so old. And I'm like, it's not old because no one's doing it. Like, it's not old yet. People don't get it. (laughs) So (laughs) until they start communicating, I'm always going to say that. Yeah, I totally agree. It's oh we have we have a ton of South African. I, I do some work for the UK as well. <laughs> South African, UK, and US therapists who are so bored. I mean, um, journalists who are so bored of our answers. Of our answer, but people need to start doing it, and then we don't have to give that answer anymore, right? Like, <laughs> isn't it just so simple? Like, I wish it was so simple. We we would yeah, have not, simple, we, we wouldn't have like you know the, the long queues of people who want help for different difficulties with sex, but. It, it, it really is, that's what you're saying, if a couple can learn to communicate about it, but also educate themselves about what, I hate the word, but what is normal, just what to, like, what's going to happen between them that, that happens between almost all couples. And if we can understand that wanting different or wanting sex different levels at different times is completely normal and we learn to expect that. And then we learn to communicate about it when we're experiencing that difference, then that's actually protective for our relationship. And it could make us quite resilient as a couple. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think like this idea of normal when it comes to human sexuality just doesn't exist. I even as far back as Kinsey, I think, you know, Kinsey had said something like the only not normal sex act is that which you cannot perform or something like that. Um, and then now, I mean, we still see like just the range of normal is just so vast and that's exciting. That's a good thing. I think people should embrace that, that like, this is really, you know, interesting and dynamic and like contextually impacted in so many ways. Yeah. And, and your normal is different to my normal is different to somebody else's normal. And you, you don't know what that is unless you're willing to, to venture out and or explore it or have have conversations about it and I can vouch for that ability to protect the relationship and the intimacy of the relationship through communicating about it it's so powerful really is yeah definitely I think there's so many assumptions made around all of that that if you happen to be someone who is comfortable talking about it then that must mean like that there's something going on there, you know, like, and it's like, no, actually everyone should be comfortable talking about it. Cause you'd have a healthier, happier sex life. Yeah. And in, and relationship, like it, they're, they're also like my early career looked a lot at the intersection between like relationship satisfaction and sexual satisfaction and how those two things feed into each other. And they are so intricately related and that doesn't have anything to do with frequency. As you said earlier, you know, it's just about, Like, are you both on the same page? Are you communicating about your sex life? Are you like feeling free to express yourself and to like fully be you in the context of sex? You know, all of those things. Yeah. And and research on what extraordinary sex looks like does not involve frequency at all. You know, picking up the right? Yeah, I love her. I was at the hairdresser earlier and and, um, he was asking me, so so what is extraordinary sex? And I said, well, it's got absolutely nothing to do with frequency and it's got everything to do with communication, vulnerability, transcendence and so on. And and he, he he is a gay man and he said, Well, yeah, and you know, that's what happens so often in, in same-sex relationships. There's openness, there's communication, there's expression of needs. And I think that with heterosexual couples, particularly, there's so much more expectation gendered, as you said, expectation on the couple, on the on the woman, on the man, if they identify as that, versus in same-sex relationships where there is a completely different set of 
expectations or 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 what uh, again is normal i hate to use that word is that something that's come out of your research that you've seen yeah definitely i think that goes back to like our sexual script theory of like our sexual scripts are so heterocentric and we think about them in a very heterosexual way so i think actually the queer community sort of benefits from not having that super strict heterocentric script to follow that's a benefit, but it can also be hard because it's harder to navigate if you don't have this expectation in your mind. So there's, I think, benefits and drawbacks to that. But another thing that we see is like, there are all of these sort of like, have you heard of, you've heard of the, probably heard of the term like lesbian bed death. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Right. (laughs) I don't know that everyone has. So just for anyone who's listening, who hasn't heard of that term, it's like this idea that when two women get together, then their sex life completely drops because they don't have a man to drive it, (laughs) which is insane. Uh, That's not, that's not how that works, (laughs) but um, how that works. Right. That's not how that works. (laughs) We don't need men to drive our sex drive. (laughs) So, um, But what's really interesting is like our research, we looked at like straight women's perceptions, bisexual women's perceptions and lesbian perceptions of sexual desire. And this idea of lesbian bed death really existed within all of those groups. It wasn't a lesbian issue at all. It was like a long term relationship issue. (laughs) And so I think that it's just that within the lesbian community, there's this like expectation of this thing that's going to happen. And so there's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy happening there. There's like a bit of something that's, that's feeding into that and is allowing for that to maybe not be as problematic in a relationship when the sexual frequency does decline because of that expectation being set at the outset. And so maybe all of us would benefit from having something like that, or maybe we should just get rid of that altogether and just allow us to like experience relationships and not sort of hang our hats on this sexual frequency piece. And I think the the problem is that people place so much, they place so much emphasis and, and put so much pressure on this one part of a relationship as a signifier of how we are or how things are going or the only way that we connect. And we know that people connect in so many other ways and sexual connection is actually such a small part of that ability to build on and strengthen a connection between, between partners. Mm-hmm. So I, I I really I think we don't do ourselves any any service as human beings, whether we're we're queer, whether we're straight, whether we are in a same-sex relationship, where whether we're in a thruple. We don't do ourselves any any service by buying into the scripts that I don't know, religion might have told us or teachers might have told us that unhelpful learning that we have to unlearn in order to to develop a really healthy relationship with our own sexuality and with our partners it's often quite entrenched have you done any research around understanding where these these particular scripts come from and and how people tend to to attach themselves so intensely to them Yeah, a little bit. Um, That's so hard to measure, right? Like, it's really difficult to get a good scientifically sound measure of that, aside from people's retrospective perceptions of it. So, so there's that. But when you were talking about storytelling earlier, it reminds, so one project that I'm super excited about, that's not a research project, it's more of like a community education project, but is called the Abstinence Project. And I think that this is actually where a lot of this stuff stems from is 
It looks to expose the um, harms of abstinence-only sex education through the art of storytelling. And so we're collecting all of these stories from people all over the place and, um, and highlighting how this really does shape our sexual scripts. And it really does result in us having like deep-seated shame and guilt around our own sexual expression and our own sexual feelings in a really harmful way. And I think that those early messages that we do receive about sex, whether that's because of religious influence or because of parental influence or like lack of any sex education or just like fear-based or shame-based or like scare tactics being integrated into sex ed. I think all of those messages when you're much younger really do shape how you begin to see sex and early relationships. Like we, we don't really um, give adolescent or like early high school sort of relationships or even high school relationships like that the credit that I think that they deserve in how they impact our future sexual and relational development and I think we kind of like fluff them off as like oh that's just puppy love like that's not a serious thing for us to consider but uh, we need to start taking these like adolescent and teenage relationships more seriously and teach those people, teach those kids how to navigate those in a really healthy way so that they can start building a really healthy base for relationships that they will take into adulthood. So I think that's a large part of, and I mean, I'm not sure, I'm sure it's similar in South Africa, but certainly in the US and Canada, we really shy away from even thinking about adolescent sexual experiences let alone like talking about them or studying them. So there's so few people that are able to get that work done in part because of barriers placed around like, well, if you ask them about sex, then they're going to have sex. And that's just like not how that works either. <laughs> you know, equipping the youth with information does not result in them doing it. So it actually just results in them making healthy decisions for themselves and able to navigate it in a healthier way healthy informed decisions right um, I was I mean it's a whole other topic in itself but right I mean how many states in the U.S. don't have to use scientifically accurate medically accurate um I think it's no only 13 states require medically accurate sex I mean, ed that something gives, around there I mean it's less than half that gives far or less it's less than a quarter <laughs> yeah it's absolutely obscene and look in South Africa and, and it's been like this in the UK as well, where the focus of sex education has been risk-based and it's like it's got that danger narrative. And in, especially if you compare it to, say, Dutch sex education, which is obviously pleasure and consent, and it's got a very different focus. And we see, the research shows us, the, the adult development or the adult sexual development and how people turn out sexually is very different in the US, South Africa, the UK and the Netherlands. So yeah, in South Africa, it's the same, you know, HIV, STIs, unwanted pregnancy. And I just don't think that people are equipped enough with what, what sex really looks like and can really be like when we get into the world where sex is a part of our life. And I could go off on an entire tangent on it, but if, if you don't mind, I'm going to, I'm going to come back to sexual desire, but because I think that you know, I know this is what people want to know. You know, it's like the million dollar question, like what helps us maintain desire? What helps us keep wanting sex? And I, I knew you were the person to speak to because your research is incredibly rich when it comes to the answer to this question. 
Yeah, <laughs> that is um, definitely the million dollar question, I think, uh, you know, and the short answer is uh, a lot of things. <laughs> and the long answer is, and the medium answer is these can be broken down into these sort of like individual level, interpersonal level and societal level, level factors that contribute to each individual's level of desire. And then those two individuals or more come together and then they navigate how to maintain with all of their puzzle pieces fitting together. Um, so I think we just talked a little bit about the, some of those societal factors, right? Like the messages that we receive about sex and um, what our attitudes towards sex and sexuality are, how comfortable we are with our own, with um, like how we are as sexual beings. And then there's like those interpersonal things like communication that we were talking about earlier, really crucial things like being motivated to meet your partner's needs. So that's like sexual communal strength. Amy Muse's research has looked at that. Like what are the ways that we can cultivate sexual communal strength where we become more and more motivated to meet our partner's sexual needs for the sake of the relationship. That's really crucial. I think we also see that things like sexual compatibility with a partner and feeling like we can, that's related to this like communication piece is if you're not sexually, very sexually compatible, to what extent do you feel comfortable talking to your partner, at least bringing that up in some way and satisfaction in the relationship, all of those things. And then there are like those individual factors. So like the extent to which we might be, um, have negative attitudes toward um, our bodies. We might have like really be hung up on not feeling comfortable naked or not feeling like we can fully let go in a sexual setting because of trauma or because of any other variety of pain, sexual pain, you know, there's all these individual level factors too. And that can even be like a day-to-day thing. Like I'm really stressed and I, you know, you might have like, you're really, really stressed out and then like things start piling on and you just end up having a super hectic day. And by the end of the day, you're like, the kids are screaming, like the last thing I want to do is have sex with you right now. And that is fine. (laughs) That's a normal response to one's environment. You know, it's the normal, it's a normal response to one's environment. It's not a problematic desire response. If you don't have sexual desire and it's because of a variety of things that no one would have sexual desire for. Similarly, if you're in a relationship and like the way someone touches you sexually and it doesn't feel good, I don't anticipate that. I I anticipate that that person might have low sexual desire because they're not experiencing a positive thing while they engage in sex with their partner, right? So I think when we look at all of these different factors, if we think about, and I think what's really beneficial for couples, like as sort of a tangible piece, like that's all very theoretical and academic. But when we think about the tangible take-home piece of that, at the end of the day, like I published a paper in JSR that outlined, that created a conceptual model that outlined all of those pieces and sort of really describes each one of them. So I think based on the prior literature. And so I think one of the things that people can do is like kind of a take-home is think about, okay, being aware of the fact that all of these different things impact my desire. How can I talk with my partner and begin to understand what they bring to the table, what each of them bring to the table around desire. And what are some of the ways in which we, I mean, inevitably every couple is going to face desire discrepancy at some points in their relationship. So what are you doing to mitigate that? And how are you being sort of really invested in the relationship in a way that you can talk about these things, understand each other's desire and know that 
not having desire at a certain period of time or experiencing desire discrepancy at a certain period of time, adjusting those expectations to say like, this isn't the end of the world and it doesn't have to be a bad thing for our relationship. I think that that's been a real shock for a lot of people. I'm going to segue just a little bit, but during the pandemic. So, so when everything started to kind of I don't know, when the shitstorm started to hit last year, for lack of a better term, everyone was like, oh, we're going to be home all the time. We're going to have lots of sex because we're together. And I was sitting there going, no, you're not. Like, this is highly unlikely because, as you just said, context. Context is so, so, so important. And feeling worried and concerned about uncertainty, you know, and the uncertainty in the world and this virus and your kids running around screaming at home and trying to parent and keep a job. And and it doesn't create the right environment for us to want to engage sexually. And yet, again, I think the, the pressure we place on ourselves you made such a wonderful point there that I, I wanted to, to almost get you to repeat around all couples will experience you know, this, this difference, this dip, this distancing in their Mm -hmm. experience of sex. And I think particularly since the pandemic started, I've seen that with so many couples who then problematize that and aren't sure how to navigate out of that. Is is that you're nodding? That's something you've also seen. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think like we have this There's this, we need to adjust our expectations to say it is totally a normal part of relationships to feel that desire discrepancy at times. You know, we don't want that to be sustained over a long period of time. But if you approach those instances of desire discrepancy as being a normal part of fluctuation in a relationship, then we don't problematize it in a way that makes it, you know, really negatively impact our satisfaction. And so I think especially during the pandemic, there are so many other factors being thrown at us. And I'm sure, yeah, you probably had to field a ton of like media requests around like, what about this baby boom? We're going to see, I'm like, we're not going to see a baby boom. Are you crazy? Like, no, we're not. After the pandemic. After the pandemic. Yes. Yes. Like, no, we're not going to see a baby boom. The First of all, the people who are stuck in their houses together, they've got a contraceptive, like they're, they figured out how to prevent pregnancy within their relationships, the instances within which, and also like, they're just not going to be engaging in sex all the time. They've got other stuff to do. It's an uncertain world. So yeah, funny, but, um, and we were right. (laughs) There was not a baby boom. Um, right, right. But yeah, I think like adjusting our expectations to know that this is totally a normal part of relationships and, um, that ebb and flow is going to happen on an individual level. You will, you will inevitably face sexual desire discrepancy or differences in desire at some points in your relationship. And, and you're saying that, that individual factors, the interpersonal factors and the societal factors can actually, you know, understanding those and, and bringing them into the way you navigate that experience can be the difference between disconnection or reconnection for a couple. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. And being willing to navigate that together too, in a like couples based approach. Together is the, is the really important word in that, right? It's not one person's problem as we always totally. hear. Mm. Mm-hmm. So then, so, so 
managing that difference then i mean we we've said and and everyone listening may be bored out of their minds about the fact that <laughs> communication this is the the crux of it right the the ability to actually talk about it why do you think we have such a difficult time talking about sex we we all are doing it but why are we having such a hard time actually talking about it yeah i mean i think because of what you said at the very beginning like that shame that's wrapped up in it, right? We have this like idea that we shouldn't talk about it, that it's not something that should be talked about, that we need to keep it to ourselves and that that's something you do behind closed doors. So there's no magical switch that just flips when you become in a relationship with somebody and need to start talking about this out loud with another person. And so I think um, we just have so much stigma wrapped up in talking about it that people become really uncomfortable. And I think some people might sort of be listening, thinking like, Oh, communication. Um, yeah, it's easy to say, but like, how do you actually do it? And I think some people don't even have the vocabulary or like the practice with the words that are necessary to talk about sex. Like people aren't, some people aren't even comfortable saying the word sex, <laughs> right? That makes it really hard to talk about as well. If people don't have the vocabulary or the confidence in using those words in a way that doesn't make them like giggle, <laughs> like they're in the, you know, in like fourth grade. And I think that that's because we never really move past that. <laughs> and so I do one way I think to do it is a really that I find to be effective in people that I talk to is around really talking about approaching communicating about sex as something that you want to improve your relationship so really like basing it on hey I'd really like to feel a bit closer to you in this way I'd love for us to feel intimate in this way and therefore I want to talk about like the way that you touch me when you do this, because I feel like we would feel so much closer if you could like adjust to touching me like this, like not criticizing because people get really, really walls go up when you criticize around sex, right. Um, more than anything else. And so not making it a criticism, but rather a improvement using that like positive language around, I want to improve this to feel closer to you for these reasons. And in this way. Yeah. I, I think that that's really, really, really helpful. So it's it's really about the way that you frame it. And, and I'll often say to my clients, it's not about what you say, but how you say it. Because saying to your partner, I don't want to have sex because I, I can't stand the way you touch me. Not It's a no. It's a solid, hard no from us. Uh, take it from experts. Don't do that. But saying to your partner, I really would like to try exploring different types of touch with you when we have sex. And could you try this? And could you try that? And I, I read about this and I'm curious about it and offering suggestions and thus validation through that process gets you a lot further than being critical or dismissive or accusatory in your, in your community. And I think it's okay to like tell a white lie around I read this somewhere or I had a dream about this last night. Or I listened to a podcast. Or, <laughs> or I listened to a podcast and I heard them talking about this. Like, I think that that's, you're doing it for the sake of the relationship. Like, no, I'm not endorsing lying, but I think like you're doing, you're, you know, you're doing a service to your relationship and it's a really important service. And so I think it's okay if that helps you approach the conversation in that way. No, I, I say that to people as well, because I think it helps give give them context. You know, oh, I was on Facebook earlier and I had this article, you know, pushed onto my feed about okay. it. 
what do you think it helps people to to contextualize it at a, in a space where maybe again you know they don't have the words they haven't been taught about it so mm-hmm. I guess I'm I mean I could geek out about sex for hours and days and years which I generally tend to do so so <laughs> just tell me you know as a as a as a researcher what have been some of the most surprising things that you found and and some of the most maybe even shocking things that you found in the time you've been doing the work one of the main things has been around like we have all these all these assumptions about gender and about how important gender is to all of this and i think that one of my most surprising and valuable and like favorite findings has been around like that there's just more variation within each gender than there are between so we're always searching for gender differences but really we should be searching for gender similarity and looking instead at other factors that might contribute not only is that a more inclusive way to do research because you're not looking at a gender dichotomy but it's also a way to understand the nuances that that go beyond this like gender change, you know, we're always looking at this. And so that's been really a valuable finding around just like, especially with desire that there really is far more variation within than there is between. Um, So it's not as foreign, this whole like men are from Mars, women are from Venus. We know that that's complete bull. So it's really far more complex than that for everyone. And I think that's one of my, one of my main ones. Oh, it's so, it's so interesting. And I, I I think we need, as you said, to move away from that very stuck idea that we've got going around and around that there's so many gender differences. And I'll completely own up and say, you know, early on in my career, I spoke about these, these men are like this and women are like that. And the, the theory that you learn, and this was a long time ago that I trained, but the theory has come a long way and research in sex has come a long way. And so we understand so much more. And as, as you say, I think in our research, we need to be so much more inclusive. I don't think we are inclusive enough. And, and that will help us to really make sense of people's experiences, not men versus women, as you said, in that dichotomy, which is, is just, I don't think, very helpful. So, I mean, what was it that got you into doing sexuality research and sexual desire in particular? Did you find it or did it find you? Um, well, I don't, I've never thought of it, that question in that way. Did it find me? I don't know. Um, I think, I, I guess it found me because I was planning to be like Clarice from Silence of the Lambs. I was going to be a forensic psychologist. Wow. <laughs> And like but I hopefully watched. not like her in the movie and have everything oh, played out. But yeah, I get the sure. vibe. Okay. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so I worked at a prison in undergrad and um a high security prison, and I really didn't enjoy it. And I was taking a human sexuality course at the time and had no idea that was even a field that one could study. And so um you given that you do sexual pain, probably know Dr. Caroline Kukal. So she was um, actually the teach. She was teaching that class, and um, and I just was fascinated by the fact that that was uh, yeah that that was an area of study. So I took her advanced seminar, and then um, ended up doing a thesis in romantic relationships and romantic rejection, and then um, moved into more sexual and relationship satisfaction work. And uh, that's how yeah, quite pragmatic, really, because I was like, oh, there's not very many sex researchers. Uh, It's a small growing field, which was super appealing to me because I feel like I, yeah, I just wanted something that was smaller. And then um, also 
you know, people are always going to have sex and forever. So like, I will never run out of a job ever. Oh my God. I always say that, right? We'll, we'll always have work. We'll always have work. Always have work. I will always have work, whatever that looks like. And so um, that was really like the pragmatic part of it was just like, this is fascinating and it's really important. And no, and I was always really comfortable talking about it. Um, you know, I'd be the person my friends would go to for advice in high school or whatever. Um, cause I just didn't really shy away from it. I've always been a pretty direct person. And so I think that, um, that played a role as well of just like the comfort level. How did you get into it? I relate to you very much on that in, in being somebody that has always been very open and honest and transparent and unfazed, really. This career found me in that I didn't know what I wanted to do when I went to university. I had no clue. So I just took some psychology courses and we had a lecture in third year, I think one lecture on sexual dysfunctions. And I heard these terms like vaginismus and anorgasmia. And at the time, you know, they were talking DSM-4 at the time, like um, hyperactive sexual desire disorder. And I was really taken back because as a young woman in university, I'd never heard of these terms. And then I asked my girlfriends who were studying with me, they'd never heard of these terms. And I started realizing that as a young woman who, who was highly fortunately highly educated if I didn't know what these terms were then other women didn't know and so again it kind of found me and that I I started working at a a sexuality and um, an abortion clinic and the amazing prof McIntosh who was on my podcast feels like many seasons ago talking about (laughs) um, the experience of sexuality and breast cancer she just kind of saw something and was like, off you go, off you go towards a master's in human sexuality, off you go towards research. And I I did all my research. I did a lot of my research because of her around women's perceptions of their sexuality following termination of pregnancy and therapist perceptions of women's sexuality. And I've always been fascinated by it. So I, 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 I see you fellow sex geek. I, I (laughs) see, I know. Um, I, I agree with you. It's like the most fascinating subject and we will always have work. And I think that people will always be interested to hear what it is we have to say. And I'm glad about that because it means that like we can always get the the real information, evidence-based information out there, which we know we have to work hard to do because yeah. whether it's Dr. Google or Dr. Minister at the church, they don't disseminate you know, correct evidence-based anatomical factual information. And that is a long-term fight that we have to fight, obviously, the world over, except in Holland, where things seem to be very progressive. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm so, I'm so glad I've gotten to chat to you today. And, uh, you know, asking you about your, your, your research that you're working on now, what new stuff are you working on? Please tell me. Yeah, um, well, one of my most recent studies that I'm super excited about is around sexual trauma and looking at how to move beyond sexual trauma. And especially when it comes to like making it into a very healthy and happy and pleasure filled sex life beyond sexual trauma. So um, that was a qualitative study that we just finished. And it's been amazing pouring through those transcripts. Like, the stuff I mean, and also a couple of the papers that we're publishing are like very, very tangible, like tangible suggestions for therapists, for partners of people who are um, with someone who's experienced sexual trauma for like 
they're just really, I love the tangible take-home message piece. I feel like that's super valuable. And so I'm really loving that we're able to uh, publish some of that work now. Um, that's been one thing that I've been really excited about working on. And I, and I wanted to, I, I said it at the start of the call, but I, I wanted to congratulate you again on your appointment to, to the uh, scientific committee for the World Association of Sexual Health. It's it's prolific. It's amazing. And I'm so glad because the research that you do is, is, is it really, even for me as, as a, as an established researcher and, and clinician, it was really groundbreaking and it, it's, it's needed. It's really needed. So thank you for your time. And I really hope we're going to connect again in the future. Definitely. Thanks so much for having me. It's been such a good conversation. Are you curious about sexuality and want to learn more? Well, you can learn much more from me on several platforms. On my website, you can find short online courses to expand your knowledge, either as a member of the public or as a healthcare provider. And if you want a comprehensive sex education that you really should have had but likely never got, then check out my three-hour class on mymastery.tv where you can buy my single class for as little as 145 Rand or $13. The My Sexual Health Sexology Starter Pack includes 20, yes, 20 value-packed sexual health courses that will transform the way you support your patient's sexual health needs. Courses include things like Diagnosing and Treating Sexual Pain by the wonderful Dr. Elna Rudolph, who's the president of the World Association of Sexual Health, and courses in ethics and sexual health practice, and even courses I've developed, such as Sex Therapy for Treating Desired Differences and Sensate Focus, and so much more. The bundle actually has a combined value of over $3,900 and you can gain access to all of it for only $890. If you type in asking for a friend, that's one word, you will get 10% discount on this incredible bundle. Head to sexologycourses.com to take up this amazing offer. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd be grateful if you could rate and review this podcast so that you can continue learning about some incredible and fascinating topics and get the information about sex you should always have had. You can subscribe and follow this podcast on your favorite platform.